namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namassa Just before the uh, puja this evening, Samanir um, Hiriko and I were talking over various um, publication projects and things that we have lined up for the year ahead. And one of the one of the little verses of the Buddha that we will probably use in um, you know, in these publications is this teaching that the Buddha gave. Uh, Mindfulness overcomes all things. And I've always, um, I say always, since I heard about it, I've been very inspired by the simplicity and the directness of this. And in fact, when when we were building this Dhamma Hall here and uh, as a, a Sri Lankan couple wanted to offer the the puja table here as a, as a, a dedication of an offering to their parents and we were going to have uh, carved along the front there this uh, teaching, mindfulness overcomes all things. In the end, we didn't do it. But, but uh, it's still a very uh, relevant teaching, I find. Mm. There's one of the verses the Buddha also said that uh, I, another verse I take great strength from is, is even if you only know a little bit of Dhamma, but you take it deep, and you understand it thoroughly. That's all that's necessary. And so I think the idea that we have to study lots about Buddhism and know everything about Buddhism and the more books you read, the better, I think that's, a, that's actually an unfortunate misappreciation of this path of practice. The Buddha didn't teach the entire Tripitaka to everybody they met. He didn't sit them down and rattle off whatever it's 36 volumes or something to everybody Often it was just one teaching. And the important thing is uh, whether the teaching works for us and if we can apply it. And so as, as I was saying, this teaching, mindfulness overcomes all things, as far as I'm concerned, this is, this is really relevant. You come up against difficult situations, whether they're internal or external, subtle or gross. So what do I do with this? Well, the first port of call, the first thing to remember is mindfulness or awareness. This is, you know, sometimes we forget this and we get so busy trying to understand maybe what, what's going on or get past what's going on, get over, sort out, deal with. That's a kind of, you know, at least that's what men like to do. We like to deal with things. But there are a lot of things that happen to us in life which you can't just sort out. You can't just get over. And the Buddha was very aware of this and so his encouragement was to cultivate, first and foremost, this, this uh, faculty, the spiritual faculty of mindfulness or awareness, sati. Remember those of you who were here two weeks ago, I remember we talked about the five spiritual faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And, and mindfulness is that faculty that oversees everything else. And So... 
this is really worth cultivating. There's, there's a lot of things that might be worth cultivating, maybe we can understand, but mindfulness is something that we can always cultivate. Awareness is something we can always exercise. And in fact, the lack of exercise of awareness is often our biggest problem. We, have, we know what we have to do, maybe. We have faith in the Buddha's teaching, and we've got some complex situation or some difficulty, some challenge that we have to deal with. And well, the Buddha said, be mindful. He also said, keep moral precepts and all sorts of other things. They said, well, okay, we well, keep moral precepts, but you've still got a problem. So the Buddha said, be mindful. So, well, well, be aware. But this is not just common and garden variety awareness that he's talking about. This has got to be a particular quality of awareness. And so in our effort, whether it's in formal meditation or whether it's in our daily life practice, this is worth bearing in mind. In fact, somebody wrote to me just recently and was, was saying how significant it was for, in their own practice that now they're not just being mindful of the content of their mind, but they're also being mindful of mindfulness itself, also being aware of awareness itself. And this is, this is one of the things that we can do with our minds. We can reflect on the quality of our reflection. We can be aware of our awareness, the quality of awareness. Yeah. The third foundation of mindfulness, jitta anusati, is the jitta, is it expanded or contracted? How does it feel? What sort of awareness are we operating out of? And so we might have confidence and faith in the uh, Buddhist teaching and, and this mindfulness overcomes all things. Or we read Ajahn Sumato's book, Intuitive Awareness, and, and get inspired by this state of awareness that you can just trust in. Or, or there's all sorts of great spiritual masters you can read about. You read about Sri Ramana Maharshi and how when he was 16 he just lay down the floor and dropped into this this amazing state and, and his whole being was totally transformed and he just went off and sat in a cave or a dark room or something for the next few years and, and came out completely finished. with this pristine state of awareness that never changed the rest of his life. He just sat there and radiate, radiated wisdom and compassion until he died. He said, well, that's great, I'd like that, but it's not so easy to do. Besides working with the content of our experience, we also need to work on the awareness as well with which we meet experience, these two things, the content and the awareness itself. Now, if we, if we can sense the validity of that and say, oh yeah, actually the, sometimes my awareness is really low grade. I just, I don't know whether I'm coming or going. You know, I'm not unconscious and I'm not, you know, out to lunch totally, but sometimes my awareness is pretty low grade and, you know, things are happening and I'm not really aware of them and outwardly and inwardly. And other times, you know, you put some effort into really working on your meditation and you're getting ready to say, oh, there's this really high grade quality of awareness. That things become so easy to deal with. It's, uh, and say, so, oh, right, okay, so I've got to cultivate this awareness. So how do I cultivate this awareness? Well, when I think about this, I, I think of um, three aspects. and Here and now, body-mind, judgment-free awareness. And I find that very, very helpful because you, know, might, you might have something, you might have one aspect, you might have body-mind awareness, but it's not here and now. Yeah. So to 
consider all these three things, to consider them and see how they work. Here and now, body, mind, judgment, free awareness. And this applies whether it's formal meditation or in daily life practice also, like cultivating the here and nowness of awareness. We don't have to be on a retreat to develop here and nowness. It doesn't matter where we are, actually. You can be in the supermarket, you can be driving a car, you can be on a telephone conversation to the other side of the world. And if we've trained ourselves, we can just make the suggestion here and now and then we come back to another perspective. Now, if we, if we get a conscious experience of this, a conscious appreciation of this, this is profoundly uh, helpful. And if we haven't got it, well, they say, oh, yeah, that sounds good enough. But we're not doing it. And by not doing it, what I mean is that the mind is going off, the mind energy is going off into thinking about the future, to worrying about the future. Now, where is the future? If you want to say, show me the future, can we actually point to the future? In terms of reality, all we've got is a movement in our mind that we've all agreed that we're going to call future. And in terms of reality, that's what it is. It doesn't exist in terms of how we think it exists. When we're caught up in the future, all sorts of, all sorts of horrible things can be happening. I mean, you know, just, just you feel like you're going to die. It can be so horrible. Worse than death. Eternal hell. And that's what happens when we get caught up in some mind states uh, regarding the future. Or the past. Things that have happened, and you say, well, where's the past? Can we see the past? Can we, well, we can write about the past, we can talk about the past, we can think about the past, we do think about the past. But where is the past? The past is, the, the past is dead, and the future is not yet born. And they said, don't hang on to what's here and now either. So to train ourselves to be aware of this is to come to experience the, uh, the power that comes with this quality of awareness, this, this preparedness, this maturity, this, this state of, of, of awareness. And we can see, we can see for ourselves the benefits. You know? Like one of the things that, that uh, we all suffer from, I'm sure, is this compulsively comparing compulsively discriminating. And there's nothing wrong with the uh, mental ability we have to discriminate or to compare. You know, like I can, I meet a great being, a great wise teacher, like Ajahn Chah. You know, I met Ajahn Chah. And I compared Ajahn Chah with me. And I said, oh dear. <laughs> yeah. I think there's some work to do. Now that's helpful. So, oh, not only is there work to do, but actually it's possible to do the work. Because Ajahn Chah is just a human being. You know, he'd sit down with us, he'd eat sticky rice and chilies like everybody else, you know, have a shower, go to the bathroom, do everything like everybody else. So, you know, I can compare myself with him in a helpful way. But if it's a compulsive comparing and the mind doesn't stop, then we're always comparing and we're investing energy in it. And it, become, it can become very painful. And this, I think, is uh, one of the consequences of not recognizing the relevance of here and nowness. Because it's not so easy to compare this moment with this moment, is it? Compare here with here. 
How do you compare here with here? How do you compare this moment with this moment? Not so easy, is it? And when we stop comparing, then there's a different feeling. Oh, that's nice. It really feels good just to be in this moment, in this place, here and now. That's wonderful. And we realize that we can actually change these things in our minds. It's always worrying and comparing and compulsively discriminating and anxiety and all that. Actually, we can do something about it in our daily life. And in formal meditation, likewise. You go into meditation. If we're not careful, we sit in the meditation, we, we compare this moment with imagined previous moments or imagined future moments. And say, well, it used to be better in the past. Or I hope in 20 minutes it'll be better. Well, there's room for being able to think, but when it's compulsive, well, it takes us away from the only reality where we actually have any control, which is here and now. So to learn to let go of uh, compulsively discriminating is a a gift, it's a a great blessing. I was talking uh, a few days ago with Ajahn Ajahn V, Ajahn Viridamo, who who lives in, um, I think it's Ottawa in Ontario, uh, helping look after his uh, very aged and ill mother. And we were talking about monastery life, and so he's really lonely over there. Well, not totally lonely, but it is a bit difficult. He's been there for a long time without any mother monks around. And, and so it was nice to ring up and have a chat. And we're talking about things going on in different monasteries, and you know, soon it's easy to get onto the problems that are going on, the problems that each monastery has. Because you can do this. You can compare you, you know, you say, oh, if only we didn't have this problem. If only we were like, you know, a monastery where they didn't have any problems. If only we had a better climate, or if we only had more land, or if only, if only. And this, this, this is a disease that, that can really disturb the mind. And anyway, Ajahn V was saying, well, be grateful that you haven't got uh, Ajahn Punadamo's problems. Ajahn Punadamo, he lives in a place called Thunder Bay which is way up. I mean, I think it's on the edge of the Arctic Circle. It's just so far up there. And, and you look on the map and freezing cold. And, and not only that, but they have great big bears marauding around. And, you know, I mean, huge, great big man-eating bears, nasty monsters. And he found out that there's a service that the council or the government or whatever uh, offers whereby if you have these marauding, troublesome bears, you can ring up. And um, I suppose it's, 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 let's say it's Ottawa. I ring up the council in Ottawa and say, I've got these bears, can you please take them away? And so apparently they come and they shoot them with a tranquilizer dart and then take them off somewhere and they're happy ever after. So Ajahn Punadamo rang up the authorities and said, I've got all these bears around causing trouble. And they said, oh, well, I hope we can help you. Whereabouts do you live? And he said, oh, I live in Devon County, in Thunder Bay. And he said, oh, that's interesting. That's where we take the bears when we want to get rid of them. There's <laughs> 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 nothing he can do about it. He's stuck there with all these bears. You know, I mean, our neighbours sometimes, they, they sound pretty wild and sometimes they look a bit scary, but they never bite. I, I, <laughs> I've been here for 15 years and they haven't bitten me yet. <laughs> I think I'd rather have our problems. But anyway... This comparing all the time, it can be really painful and, and, um, and it disturbs the mind. And if we learn to cultivate the quality of awareness that is here and now, it makes a big difference. So we can just reflect on that here and now. And as I say, if we, 
If we just use those words, sometimes you can just, if you're getting spun out, just say here, now. Yeah. Having a collective conversation on the phone, or something, here, now. And it makes a difference. You come back. So. Here and now, body, mind. That's another thing that's very important because we can feel like we're here and now, but we can be totally up in our head. And the, uh, the kind of culture, the world we live in these days, of course, encourages this. It's a wonderful thing, the human brain, and it's a tremendous power. We want to access that power, make the most of that power. That's understandable and wonderful. However, the brain is, is one organ in this organism, and thinking is one aspect of our being. And if we are lost in that aspect, then... Um, the practice goes out of balance, basically. Yeah, the four foundations of mindfulness. Again, the first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of body. Yes, we can say, well, my mind is the cause of my suffering. I'm extremely healthy. Go to the gym three nights a week and, and whatever. Take all your supplements and you're extremely healthy. But my mind is the problem. And so you try to sort out the mind by using the mind. But what can happen is we just stir the mind up more. Yeah. Ajahn Chai used to talk about he said it's like standing underneath a great big ant's nest with a stick and you're sticking the stick up in the ant's nest and the, st- the ants are stinging you and you poke more and you try and stop them from stinging you just keep poking and poking these stinging ants keep stinging you well you've got to stop upsetting them and that's basically what we have to do with our mind we've got to stop upsetting our mind and it's quite a difficult thing to do if we're habitually upsetting our own minds and to let go of this habit uh, what's encouraged is come back to the body. The body's always here. There's all sorts of meditation objects or skillful contemplations that depend on other external objects, but so long as we're alive, we've always got this body. And so there's a great advantage in, in cultivating an awareness of the word, let go of the mind, to, to stop trying to think our way out of our problems. And then the thought comes up, but if I'd stop thinking, it's just going to get worse. And say, well... You know, you don't know if that's true. Now, that thought can be very seductive. It can sound very convincing, but actually the truth is I've tried to think my way out of this for a long time and it hasn't worked. And so if that is the truth, well, then the thing to do is, okay, well, I'll try what the Buddha said because, you know, all the great teachers since the Buddha and uh, let go of, of this um, uh, compulsive being up in the head all the time. And come back to the body. And if we do it, what we experience actually is it works. It really works. You know, just meditation on mindfulness, meditation on mindfulness of the body, posture, just sitting straight, sitting up, just not, doesn't matter what you think. Just you sit there, okay, I can't meditate for very long, so I'll do 10 minutes. So just sit there for 10 minutes, cultivate a good posture, you, you know, the five points, the top of the head, the tongue, the shoulders, uh, and the belly, and uh, the buttocks. You know five points and just go through them down up and, and uh, until you settled and it, just and the mind starts thinking doesn't matter just let it think just come back to the body posture again. Just, I'm not going to just come here. so discussing it of course talking about it doesn't do it but if we exercise this ability this awareness body mind awareness not just aware of our mind but also body mind awareness if we do it then we can feel the difference for ourselves.
there's loads of information coming out now. All sorts of medical tests are being done, and and the scientists are coming out with with uh, lots of information. I, I read some time ago that the scientists have now discovered that what you eat affects your mood. <laughs> I would have thought that was obvious, but anyway, <laughs> they've now discovered that what you eat can affect your mood. And believe it or not, there are some nutritionists who, who still refute this. That, um, it's not the case. Right? So, um, and also, there's another one. I recently I thought this uh, very helpful discovery. Scientists have discovered that if you watch sad movies, it, it hardens the artery to your brain, the arteries to your brain. So, in other words, you should watch funny movies. So I think that's a very helpful bit of information. I'm all for it. I think watching funny movies is a very good idea. Whoever you like, get lots of videos, <laughs> so long as they're not too bad, and have a good laugh, and it helps the blood flow, apparently. They said, they said that actually it's as good as going on statins. You know, I mean, we all, you know, we're all worried about our cholesterol, and you don't want to do statins. And they said, well, actually watching some funny movies is as good as going on statins. This is what the report said. Don't trust me. Don't take my word. Consult your doctor. Um, see what he says. But uh, it's worth having a go anyway. So anyway, the... Um, the cultivation of awareness, here and now, body-mind, and judgment-free. That's the third aspect. Here and now, body-mind, judgment-free awareness. Because we can be here and now, here and now in this place, body-mind, but there can still be this insidious, and I say that in a technical sense, insidious, it's like it's just always undermining what's happening. And if we're alert to the potential for undoing the compulsive judging mind, then we can make a difference. There were, um, I think it was on Friday, there were three psychiatrists came to see me, or came to see us, the community, and we were talking afterwards, and just saying how, how difficult it is to get people to stop, stop blaming. You know, it's just... It's, it's just as soon as somebody's got a problem, they, they automatically, all their energy goes into, who can I blame? And this is, a, this is just like endemic. And it's, just, it's so difficult to, to help people come back and to see what, this tendency of blaming, to question it. See, what's really going on when we're blaming? What is really going on there? And can we stop it? Well, if you've got a habit of blaming, it can be very difficult. We can, you know, if we... If we I think it's pretty normal, really, um, to have a habit of blaming. And, uh, and we, we, we find an identity in it. It's like, basically, my ability to make judgments, yeah. my ability to assess, my ability to express my opinion. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of me in there. But there's nothing wrong with, of course, there's nothing wrong with the ability to assess and Evaluate, but again, if it's compulsive, if we can't get a break from it, then it's really painful. And and then the pain we're judging that saying I shouldn't be suffering. Somebody wrote to me today, and well, I read their letter today, and they were saying how they can't stop their mind judging. But now they can see the judging. 
And that's great. And I wrote back and said, well, the next step is to learn how to not judge the judging. Because, you know, if we, if we just have it pointed out to us how compulsive the judging mind is, that's not terribly difficult to, to get a little focus and a little attention and, uh, and see, oh, judging mind, just to call it by its name, judging mind. You know, if, if, you, if you go for an interview and you, you botch it and you go, oh, I was hopeless, I should have, I should have said this, I should have said that. Or, you know, or you had a conversation with somebody that was a bit difficult and you, know, you come out afterwards and you say, oh, I shouldn't have said this, I should have said that. That compulsiveness, the, the, the force behind that of condemning ourselves or condemning others. They shouldn't be like this. They this shooting and shouldn'ting all the time. It really helps a lot if we can just identify it, learn to see it, judging mind, uh huh, so judging mind, and then to see the judgment come and say, I shouldn't be judging. And say, uh huh, judging mind. I shouldn't be judging the judging, uh huh, judging mind. I shouldn't be judging the judging, the judging, judging mind. I shouldn't be judging the judging, the judging, the judging, judging mind. I shouldn't be judging the judging, the judging, the judging, the judging, the judging, the judging, the judging. Stops. And when we see that actually it can stop, we realize, again, this is something we can do. Just by observing the judging mind, skillfully, carefully, not just intellectually, but skillfully just sitting down. And uh, Many times people have come to me talking about their meditation practice and this problem and that problem and something you've been practicing for many, many years. And, and um, <clears throat> somebody rang me up just the other day and you know, real tears, uh, been meditating regularly for quite a long time every day. And, and, but listening to this, this chap, very sincere fellow, but listening to him talking, it, it, was, it was full of this, this judgment compulsive, the force of condemning himself for not being good enough. And of course I could say all sorts of affirming things and say, well, you're doing very well, you know, you know, could be doing worse, you haven't killed anybody. I mean, you know, <laughs> so, but actually what we ended up talking about was instead of meditating, learn to not meditate. Just you know, don't worry about trying to get someone to meditation because that can also be loaded with shoulds. I should have a better state of mind. I should have better meditation. And this is, as far as I'm concerned, this is a particularly Western disease because of the kind of education we've had. We, we give so much value to the discriminative intelligence. Uh, and we find a lot of me in that discriminative. We build up meanness in discriminative intelligence. I am as good as I can, as I said, express my opinion on things. So anyway, what I encouraged this chap to do was just to sit comfortably in a chair on the floor for, for 10 minutes and consciously don't meditate. You know, no music, nothing, no radio, just sit and look at the floor and just be there in the body, here and now, and listen and feel what's happening. And sooner or later, the mind will start and say, this is a waste of time, you should be doing this. Aha! Judging mind. There it is. Pleased to meet you. If you can say pleased to meet you, that's good. Probably you just say, get the hell out of here. <laughs> or something like that. You're ruining my life. You're ruining my meditation. Uh, judging mind. That's very good. 
So until we get the message that we don't have to fight this tendency, this is valuable, this is precious, this ability we have, but when we're grasping it and we become it, then it, it ceases to serve the purpose that it can serve, which is to help protect us from things that are unsafe and unwise and unskillful. So whether it's in formal meditation and you're sitting there and you, can, you hear your mind going on about some, something, how it shouldn't be this way, it should be that way, or in daily life, you're in the office and your mind going on about the secretary should be like this or my mother shouldn't be like that or the novice shouldn't be like this or the anagarika shouldn't be like that. Or, you just listen to it. All oh, right, there it is, compulsive judging mind. I'm really, really interested in this. This is the key, to get really interested. We can't pretend to be interested, but what I'm trying to do tonight is encourage you to get interested in this tendency of the mind because it's so undermining. And if we can get interested in it and then start asking the right questions, well, then we little by little we disengage from it. So here and now, body-mind, judgment-free awareness. Working on the awareness itself, as well as working on the content of awareness, as well as working on the things that, that pass through our experience. So if we can remember this, that whatever the situations we're in, yes, there's, there is the content and we need to investigate, we need to ask questions and so on, but there's also that which we're working with, the, the, the mindfulness, the awareness itself. If, if the awareness itself is not up to grade, not up to scratch, if it's a low-grade quality of awareness, well then... Even though we might be doing the right things and looking at the right object, it's not going to bring about the experience of letting go and then understanding. And also we need to be, just for a few more minutes, we need to be quite agile in, in the way we approach the content of our experience. Last week... Uh, wasn't it? Ajahn Abhinando gave an excellent talk about dealing with uh, skillful energies that we can cultivate, strengths that we can cultivate. And, and the last one he was, he was talking about, uh, I think if I'm right, he was talking about contemplation, investigation, discernment, saying how valuable it is. But again, it's not just common and garden variety thinking, you know, when we use the thinking for contemplation, uh, again, I didn't have enough to talk to this last week, we, we need to be able to disengage from it. The difference between contemplation and proliferation is whether we're being driven by it or not. If we feel we can't stop it, if we can't just unplug and then be silent, then it's probably proliferation. So when we approach the content of our experience and our thinking, <clears throat> it's important to be able to, uh, to just unplug, just to let go, just to stop thinking. In fact, I would say before we can really skillfully think, before we can really skillfully contemplate, we need to be willing to not think. Yeah. So whatever our meditation object, whether it's the, the body posture or the theme of loving-kindness or mindfulness of breathing or listening to the sound of silence, these different meditation objects, I would say there needs to be a willingness 
in our meditation to just let go of all things and just come back. Just come back to the meditation object. There needs to be that willingness. And if we've got that willingness, if we've got that, well, then we can also turn to and engage. And so the things that come to us in our meditation or, again, in our daily life are of different intensities. And so some of them, we can just look at them, just acknowledge them, and that's all you need to do, and they disappear. Ajahn Chah's teaching about this area, he, he used to say it's like you're sitting in a cafe or sitting in a coffee shop. You know, you're down at Starbucks or Nero's or whoever you go to, and you're sitting there and having a coffee and... And people come in and, you know, you've seen them before and you just kind of give them a nod. Hmm? Hmm? You recognize them, just acknowledge them. Hmm? Recognize them, nothing you have to do. You don't have to engage them because you know them. Well, so it is in our meditation. There's some of the thinkings, that thoughts that just come along. Is, you know, just, hmm? just recognize. They just turn away. So sometimes acknowledging, simply acknowledging the content of our experience is enough. We just acknowledge it, uh-huh, that's that, and turn away. But sometimes, as Ajahn Abhinanda was saying last week, sometimes you just got to really engage it and really choose to think about it. Yeah. Choose to contemplate. Say, what's going on here? Why do I, why do I suffer so much? You know, I, I'm a decent sort of bloke. You know, I don't go around killing and stealing and and lying and doing all sorts of unskillful things and got plenty of food and and the climate's okay and and yet I'm still basically not happy. Why? What what is this unhappiness anyway? What is this anyway? And again, again such contemplation can generate interest. And you get into well, why am I not happy? Now you could go out and read lots of books or ask lots of experts and so on and they they might give an opinion on the subject, but from the spiritual perspective we also have this ability to engage our own mind with contemplation, with skillful, mindful thinking, engage it and ask these questions of ourselves. Well, why am I? And then to hold that question lightly. We're not asking it from our head. We're asking it from our heart or from our guts. We're bring it down into the body. Say, why am I not happy? What's going on here anyway? And then it's interesting. You find little things just sort of float in and if we're not careful, you know, we can try too hard. Again, with regards to this, Ajahn Chah had an image. He said it's like untangling a, a fishing line or a knotted, knotted, not a bit of rope. I don't think he said fishing line, but I remember when I was a kid, I used to go fishing and fishing for eels. The eels would really make a mess of the fishing line. They're great, big, powerful things. And so you get the knotted fishing line and you try to undo it and you pull it this way and it gets tighter. And then you pull it that way, and it still gets tighter. So you stop pulling that way, because you can feel, oh, yeah, that's getting tight. That's making it worse. And you turn another, and that makes it worse. Until you find, oh, that one, actually, that one doesn't make it worse. That one, it starts to undo. Aha, aha. So it's like that with our thinking. You know, when we engage, when we engage a knot in our hearts with skillful contemplative thought, we inquire very carefully, and it is thinking, and if that line of inquiry doesn't work, well, then we move into somewhere else until we find something that it feels like it starts to untangle. 
And we can feel it first. We feel the ease coming into the body, into the heart, into the mind. We don't get greedy and grab at it and try and solve the problem immediately. Well, we can do that, but that's just going to make the tangle worse again. But not to be afraid of, of using thought in this way. There was a talk Ajahn Chah gave about just this, this matter of what is contemplation, and it's printed in the talk, Seeing the Way. Printed in the book, sorry, Seeing the Way. The first talk in there, I think. What is contemplation? And, and the monks are asking Ajahn Chah, you know, is contemplation the same as thinking? Keep yap yap. You know, it's coarse thinking of the expression that they use. And of course, says, yeah, in the beginning, it's, it's this coarse level of thinking. But then it goes into a, a silent thinking. So, but we have to cultivate this orientation of attention, this angle of investigation, this angle of inquiry, by using coarse thinking in the beginning. You know, the classic thought formula for investigating is like contemplating the three characteristics, like things are impermanent. Everything's impermanent. And just thinking, oh, yeah, this is impermanent. Why do I worry about so much? Well, thinking about being here and now. Yeah. Why do I dwell on the past and the future so much? And, and to engage it in a skillful, feeling way. From the characteristic of dukkha. The characteristic of anatta. But the idea is that without engaging these things with this conscious thinking, we're training the attention to go a little subtler and a little deeper until it's thinking without the coarse thinking. It's still inquiring, but without the coarse thinking. So some of the experience we, we encounter uh, in awareness and the content we encounter in awareness, yeah. some of it we can just acknowledge and it disappears. So some of it we need to engage. And then there are some that um, the Buddha said and, and all the great teachers since who know these things, is that some stuff you just got to endure Again, Lung Tengti So Kamide Oton Tanan. You can hear his voice saying, Tengti So Kamide Oton Tanan. Oton. In the end, he says, it's just endurance, Oton. Because you can try all your tricks. You can try acknowledging. You can, you can try investigating. You can try loving kindness. And we, can, we can love it all to bits. <laughs> it doesn't work. It's still there. And to understand patient endurance. Now, there's a huge difference between bitter endurance and patient endurance. I think probably most of us, except for those who are blessed with the parameter already well developed of patient endurance, the rest of us have to learn by getting it wrong. I certainly did for a long time in Thailand. this bitter endurance. This, I thought the Buddha taught endurance. Ajahn Chah talks about orton, orton all the time, patience and patience. You know? But endurance. But it wasn't the right kind of endurance. There was also a resentment going on. It's like this is a second-rate kind of practice that I'm doing because I have to put up with all this nonsense. Whether it was the nonsense that was going on outside me, like somebody giving a boring talk or, or the, the, you know, sweating because of the horrible heat and and something, something unpleasant was happening, or whether it's internal stuff, worries, anxieties, fears. Did I make the right decision? Should I go somewhere else? And you looked at it and you said, well, I looked at it and I said, well, it seems like this place is good enough. I've been to quite a few other places. And, but the mind just doesn't stop. You know, well, should I go somewhere else? Said, well, I've already looked at it. I said, why don't you just shut up? You know, keep going on all the time, telling me to go somewhere else. 
and get bitter endurance doesn't work. But if we approach it with patient endurance and just say, oh, well, there's obviously some conditioned tendency here. It's always going somewhere, always trying to get things better, comparing, compulsively comparing and judging the situation. So there's this tendency of the mind. Even though you've got everything, even though things will eventually probably settle down, the mind won't stop. It just goes on and on. I say, oh, well, I'll be patient. I will. I will choose to be patient. Patient endurance. doesn't matter what comes. Patient endurance. To appreciate that also is a great tool in our toolkit for dealing with the content of awareness. These thoughts this evening are hopefully an encouragement to support you in your own contemplation on these two aspects of practice. The cultivating the awareness itself here and now body, mind, judgment-free awareness. And to have tools, ways to actually engage the content or deal with or approach or work. Some things we just have to acknowledge. Some things we engage. Some things we just have to endure. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Ah, uh-huh.